Psalm 48. Uh, the glory of the reign, of the king's reign over his city is what I've called this. But it has a title here. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah here. Again, another song of the sons of Korah. Uh, among other theories about when or, or what might be the occasion behind this psalm, what historical occasion is, I think there probably was a historical occasion behind all of the psalms. And, and certainly they use these psalms in their liturgy and their worship. But Second Chronicles chapter 20, and we'll look at that later, maybe the very thing that happened which prompted this psalm to be written. The theme of this song is, psalm is, as I've said in its placement among Psalms 46 and 47, is important for us to note. These psalms regard the glory of Yahweh, the King of kings, as he reigns over all things for the glory of his name and the joy of the saints in Zion. This psalm concentrates its focus especially upon God's dwelling with his people, which gives the picture of a shepherd king. And the highly revered uh, Jewish interpreter, Kimchi, regarded this psalm as primarily referring to the Messiah. And as, of course, as we look at the psalms, we should be seeing Christ in all of the psalms, certainly, of which we should have no trouble believing that this regards the Messiah we will see today that it especially regards his second coming. And so if you look at these psalms in succession, as I said this morning, Psalm 46, the incarnation of Christ, Psalm 47, the, the ascension of Christ, and Psalm 48, the return of Christ, the second coming has to do with uh, what, uh, especially what Christology, those three aspects of Christ's life and ministry deal with. First this evening, praise the God of Zion, verses 1 through 3. Have you ever heard this song, if great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God and the mountain of his holiness, beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. And I don't even know when I memorized that. We got to make our kids memorize stuff because there's things in here that I don't know where they came from, <laughs> or what they're doing there, but it's a great psalm. It's a great, we're going to have to sing that together. We usually sing together at night something, and I'm always searching for songs that I've forgotten, and that was one that was reminded me when I was studying this psalm. But this song breaks out first with a litany of exuberance towards God. Not every psalm is a litany of exuberance. We've seen that. The Psalms of Lamentation, we've just recently been looking at. But this is one of joy, of great exuberance. Great is Yahweh, greatly to be praised. But the psalmist is especially ecstatic because the praiseworthy God, the praiseworthy God, is among his people. In the city of our God is where he dwells, his holy mountain. And it's holy because this is where he is. He is present there. The presence of the holy God affects the glory of the city. The, it's beautiful and elevation. It's the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north. Again, we see the inclusion of the world in relationship to the joy of worshiping God. The God of Mount Zion in the, the far north, the city of the great king. Now, one of the things that I need to mention again tonight and hopefully you'll follow along, is that Zion is a city 
certainly here, it's the city of David. But Zion is a representation of God's people, especially as we see that uh, picture increased in the Old Testament as it comes into the New. Zion is a picture of God's people. It's not just a place. We shouldn't think of God dwelling in a location, a a geographical uh, position, but with his people, in the midst of his people. That's the great uh, uh, crescendo of this truth found in Revelation chapter 21. The new heavens and the new earth or the new Jerusalem there comes down and God is in the center of it. And it's the bride of Christ. The last two Psalms have rightly called God most high, Elyon, as he is the greatest of all kings of the earth. He's the greatest of all kings. Therefore, the place where he dwells is the joy of all the earth. The most high we see here is the protector of his city. As we've seen that already, it says within her citadels. And that term citadels refers to a high palace, a a situated, a, a palace that's situated high, which would have been a defensive location. A palace that is high is a defensive location. That's a place where people would feel safe. But that's not the point of the psalm. The psalm is pointing out that God is within her citadels. They're not safe because of their high building, their high palace. They're safe because God is there. It reminds me of the psalm we just looked at a few times. We're not going to trust in our bows or in our shields or in our swords. We're not going to trust in our chariots. We're going to trust in God. He's our refuge and strength. God has made himself known as a fortress. And I think we should take this to mean that even the great men of the earth, they need a protector. Because <laughs> that's where they dwell. They dwell in the citadels. They dwell in the palaces. This is a God who far outranks the greatness of men, is what the psalmist is saying. The citadels need protection. And God is the protection of his people. The leaders of God's people need the protection of the one true and living God, the most high God. He is our refuge and strength, Psalm 46. Secondly, enemies be warned, keep your distance. Enemies keep your distance. Now, there is both in this a metaphorical and a historical record that we should take into account, verses 4 through 8. Verse 4, for behold, the kings assembled. They came together. Now, that language, the kings assembled, they come together, is a picture of the city of man. It's, an, it's a metaphor, as it were, for mankind rising up, unifying against God. We see that especially in Psalm 2. It's one of the basic elements of the Psalms, that you have the wicked as a category, you have the righteous as a category. And when the wicked come together, they come together scheming. They take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. Right? And we see that even in the end, in Revelation, the nations of the world gather together in a battlefield to wage war against God. And so we see this as a theological theme in Scripture. And we see that essentially, and most fundamentally, that it's fulfilled in what the world did against Christ, isn't it? Psalm 2, 1 and 2, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, this is spoken of as being fulfilled 
in the Lord Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 4, 26 and 28. Peter's saying there in a prayer, you appointed that this take place against your anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he quotes that text. So we know fundamentally the world had gathered together representatively the religious of the Jews, the Gentiles were there, Rome, which was a picture of all the nations of the world, which the, the old saying, all roads lead to Rome. And so the world is gathered together against Christ, according to God's sovereign plan. And that's taken place. And it didn't turn out too well for the world, did it? I mean, for the enemies of God. <laughs> Many of the enemies of God become saved because of that as we see later, especially in history, as it unfolds. This was God overcoming the world through his anointed. And so this is one of the great theological illusions that the psalmist is painting here, but it's also his, an historic event, most likely, the, the psalmist is looking at here. It's, he's alluding to. Look at verses 5 and 6. As soon as they, that is the assembled kings of verse 4, saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. What did they see? That God is in the midst of Zion. That Yahweh is, her, is, is Zion's defense. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as of a woman in labor. Now, we already looked at that. This could regard Sennacherib, all these uh, chapter 46, 47, 48 of the Psalms could regard Sennacherib and Assyria, this great army coming up against Israel or Judah, Jerusalem, and, and being destroyed by a single angel. Uh, or it, this situation seems like it, it correlates very well with 2 Chronicles chapter 20. If you want to turn there, we'll look a little bit at 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And this is Jehoshaphat, who is reigning now in Jerusalem. He's the king. And the Moabites... And the Ammonites, and with them some of the Munites, Meunites is how you say that, I believe. And also, in verse 10, the Edomites are present. Mount Seir, the people of Mount Seir are present. And they came against Jehoshaphat for battle, or against Israel. You see, Jehoshaphat there is a representative of his people, of Israel. And so in verse 12, there's a prayer of dependence. And this is a profound prayer. Oh, our God... Will you not execute judgments on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. Listen to this prayer. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Somebody put that on your car or something. <laughs> or, or write, put a plaque, make a plaque and put that on it and, and memorize that. I could have that every day, wake up to that, because so often... I'm faced with things that I don't know what to do. And I think you are too, if you're honest. But our eyes are on you. Whew. And all of Judah was in this sort of dependent prayer, verse 13 says. And so they receive a word from the prophet in verse 14. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly, and he said, listen, all Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. 
tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Zerul. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm. Hold your position. And see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. (laughs) I love this text. This is a gospel text, isn't it? Worship is warfare. Look at verse 21. They hear this word. And when he had taken counsel with the people, this is the kind of leadership we should pray for. He appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab and Mount Seir who had come out against Judah so that they were routed. Who routed them? Verse 23. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. (laughs) They committed suicide in a sense. They killed each other. This was how God would deliver his people. Now, I don't want to get too descriptive, and if certainly the way we ought to pray for the sinners outside the church and the growing sinful inclination of our neighbors, our relatives, is we need to pray for their salvation, that they repent. But we also need to pray that God deliver his people the way that Paul tells us to pray that we may live quiet and peaceable lives. You know, when the society turns against Christians, that quiet and peaceable worship is not easy. It's it's difficult, which is why we're commanded to pray. Pray for all those who are in authority. King Jehoshaphat, Lord, give us a king, give us a a president, give us congressmen, Give give us senators, give us representatives that fear you like Jehoshaphat feared you. Make our hearts fear you like Judah feared you here. But this may very very well may be the stage of this psalm. In the fulfillment of verse 24, when Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. Now, Psalm 29 also parallels this very thing. And the fear of God came upon all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. Psalm 48, 5. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded that they were in panic. They took to flight. These are good illustrations for our faith. I, I preached this morning on the fact that we should not lose courage in the face of a society that is increasing in its Uh, boldness in rebellion against God, we cannot be discouraged about that. Christ reigns. God is still with his people. He can overcome our enemies. He has overcome them through the Lord Jesus Christ. This should inform how we pray ourselves and how we see the scriptures. Psalm 48.5, as soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Very much, very well could be the way that uh, 
Israel had experienced, and I'm sure it was, the way that Israel had experienced the deliverance uh, of God from their enemies. Whether God's deliverance of his people would take the place at, at, take place at the gates of Jerusalem or upon a different battlefield. He is seen to be all-powerful, the defender of his people. You see in verse 7, a different sort of destabilization. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. Now, Tarshish was a very... There, it's unknown which Tarshish this, this was, but this was an advanced shipping people. You know, Jonah. That's one... Uh, theory about what Tarshish this is, but these people are shipping people. They're not easily put off course. And the point here is that God is able to, the, the most skilled people in their environment are not safe if they're enemies of God. Verse 8, as we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts. Thus, the psalmist has historical deliverances in mind. Verse 8, as we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord our God. This psalm comes from something they've seen. They've seen the deliverance of God in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Selah. And that, that promise of God establishing this city forever, it, it can only be, for one, it can only be fulfilled in the promises and the fulfillment that comes through Christ to his people the city that he's built, that heavenly city. Isaiah 2.2 picks up on this promise. It shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of Zion, or the mountain of the house of the Lord, Zion, shall be established as the highest of the mountains. That is, it will be preeminent in the world, in all of creation, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. Now, this is the way that pro prophecy often works in the Old Testament. There's an increase there's an increasing vision. There's an increasing understanding. There's, there's more to it. As you move through the revelation of the Old Testament, things tend to get bigger and broader until we come to the New Testament. We see often the fulfillment there. But in Revelation 21-24, when we read about the New Jerusalem, which I'm arguing regards the bride of Christ, the people of God, where God dwells in the midst of us for eternity, by its light... It says in verse 24 of Revelation 21, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The very thing that Isaiah promised, the very establishment of forever of this Zion, this holy hill, this people of God and God being with us forever. This psalm is a psalm that we can sing with those future visions, those future certainties that scripture gives us. Well, how does God establish Zion forever? And the answer is through the establishment of the new covenant. Hebrews 12, 22 and 24, through 24 tells us those who are in the new covenant, and that's the context here, but you have come to Mount Zion. You're not in the old covenant anymore. You're in the new covenant, and that's represented by Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and feastal gatherings, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and listen to this, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Therefore, this psalm brings us to the same conclusion as the previous two, which is this. These promises and these psalms, these praises, these exultant praises, the glory of God dwelling with his people should be for us to see that, that this is for us. 
This is our future. This is our certainty. In a sense, this is our experience now. God is with us. He dwells with us in our midst. Where two or three are gathered, he is in the midst of us. And that's said in Matthew 18 with regards to judgment. And this is exactly what we should understand. That God is present with his people as a reigning influence. Now, right here, we have a few people Sunday night. God is here. He is with us. I hope that you come Sunday night saying, not just to fill your quota, not just to be nice to me because you're here. (laughs) Pastors get discouraged easily when you're not. (laughs) But, But that you're here and you know that God is here. That God is with us. And we're worshiping him and we're entering into his presence with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. And we're not alone. This little group, there's a whole host of angels worshiping God. There's an innumerable host of Christians who are with God, who have gone on before, who are with him, worshiping with us now. That's what the scriptures say here. We are in the presence of our Lord Christ. He's at the right hand of the Father. He delights in his people, in the worship of his people. He's our mediator. He's our high priest. And he's done this. God has done this through Christ. Third, considerate praise, verses 9 through 11. Verse 9, we have thought on your steadfast love. Now this thought is not merely an intellectual exercise. That's not, it's not like we, we made some conclusions up here. This thought is the kind of thoughts that you have towards your loved ones. Towards your loved ones. That's what this kind of thought is. This is intimate consideration. This is righteous thoughts towards someone we love. We thought on your steadfast love, Kassed, your covenant love, your faithfulness. O God, in the midst of your temple, that is, think lovingly of him who resides and loves to reside with us. We think lovingly of you who loves us and resides with us. That's a way to describe praise. What can we do but praise him when we come to that place in our thinking? Verse 10, as your name, O God, so your praises reaches to the ends of the earth. That is, there is no end of your worth in your praises. Of us, this is one of the things about heaven we need to grasp. There is no disappointment in heaven because there's no end to the worth of God people oh we'll be worshiping God forever and and if if we don't understand the heart of scripture and where it brings us in the greatness of God at the same time we would say well worship forever hmm an hour is sort of a long time to me now you know I'm thinking about supper not us because we all ate right when we came in (laughs) but but you understand Uh, worship oh eternity in worship worship no but his name he, he is so great that it's never, not for a moment, going to lack any substance, any value. 
we're not going to get bored, not even for an instant. And that also doesn't mean that we're going to be stressed out. (laughs) Because as parents, you don't get bored often, but sometimes you get stressed. We're not going to have the stress bit of it either. It's going to be full. And it's going to be rewarding. It's going to be God in the midst of his people. Us being recreated in the full image of the Son so that we'll fully appreciate God in our presence. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. This regards God's ability to act in power and righteousness and and should be connected with verse 11. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. This is really important. God's right hand being filled with righteousness means that he judges and he is able to judge righteously. And this means with verse 11 that he is righteous in his judgments and able to carry them out. And don't we long for that? When I was studying this this week, I just I just prayed for this kind of judgment. We are I I lament more and more on how bad of judges we are as man, men, man and women, man, mankind. I mean, one singular uh, judgment comes out of any level of courts in our system. You know, we, God willing, soon we'll be hearing about the overturn of Roe versus Wade. You hear one solitary good judgment and, and you're ready to explode with joy. One, right? We, de- we want righteous judgments. We desire it. We, we should be praying for it. We rarely see it in this world. And the psalmist is saying God is, he is able and he is a righteous judge. So let us be glad. Let us be rejoicing because his judgments are right. You know, the New Testament calls... God's judgment of the world, gospel. And this is actually a very difficult text because good interpreters go, well, how is that? Gospel is salvation. And I think it is a text to be wrestled with, but Romans 2.16. On that day, according to my gospel, Paul says, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. I don't think I can preach to you tonight as to exactly what that means, but I think it at least means this. It's good news that all judgment belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. He will not fail in it. Evil will be judged rightly. God's wrath will be poured out absolutely appropriately in every measure. And his mercy will also be shown in accordance with the value of the Lord Jesus Christ and those who receive him. Acts 17, 30 and 31, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, this is Paul preaching the gospel. He said, that's the gospel? That's the gospel. Repent. 
God has appointed a day where he will judge the world in righteousness by the one, by the man he has appointed. And he has shown this because he raised him from the dead. This will happen. Fourth, observing God's preserved city. We're almost done. Verses 12 and 14. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. The psalm ends with an inspection. I find this really remarkable. In order for us to see how God has preserved his people, the psalmist says, take a hard look around. Look, look at the ramparts. Tower her, number her towers. Go through her citadels. See if Zion has been overcome. Now, if we look at Jerusalem, the city, <laughs> it's been overcome. But if we look at what this is truly speaking about, God's people, his church, his loved ones, we look around and we can say, wow, that was a, like I said this morning, Rome was a real enemy of the church. And they're gone. And you just go throughout the empires of the world. And they've all risen and they've fallen and the church is still there. The ramparts are still present. The citadels are still standing. And then it says this. Next generation, kiddos, kahavai, God is still ruling. He's still dwelling with his people. He's faithful. He's with us. He will preserve us. Do not forsake him. The world will pass away and everything in it, but the kingdom of our Lord will stand forever. And the way this psalm ends is so remarkable. Look at this, the last sentence. He will guide us forever. What does, what does he will guide us have to do with the city and God's defense and the enemies coming against us? It's just an interesting thing, way to end this psalm, isn't it? He will guide us forever. But but I think perhaps, and I don't know this to be true, but this is my best effort. Perhaps he guides us forever because we shouldn't think of Zion as a mere stationary place. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Go into all the world. Be the church everywhere. Where I'm sending you, that's where I am with you. I am with you. We should maybe think of Zion then more like that stone in Daniel chapter 2. In, the, in Nebuchadnezzar's vision, remember that stone? It's cut out of the mountains without hand, mountain without hands, and it destroys the statue, which is representative of all the kingdoms of the world. It crushes them. It grinds them to nothing. But that's not all the, the thing does. It crushes them and then it grows <laughs> until it fills the whole world. And perhaps the psalmist is saying, remember God is your shepherd. I mean, in a sense, I mean, yes, he's speaking this to Israel, but he's speaking this to God's people of all ages. And we are not a stationary people. We're, we're not setting up a, a Jerusalem in, in Hawaii, necessarily. Jerusalem's here. 
but we're not going to set up a, you know, a city up on Koke'e and say, everybody come and observe worship here. No, we're worshiping. Jerusalem is going through the world. God's people are going throughout the world with this message that God reigns, and he is with his people, and he is our defender. Praise the Lord.